Merrill Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of the Merrill Memo. Well folks, today we'll hopefully find out what was the result of the Macquarie Conservatorium discussion. We'll also see if Council has made a decision yet on how our local pools we manage. Plus, we're also going to be finding out what's happening with the beautification of the acoustic fencing along the highway leading into town. Hello there, Matt. How are you today? Well, I've actually got a bit of time off this weekend. A bit unusual. Have you now? I was going to go... You've got a bit of a free calendar. Well, not totally free, but a a couple of spare hours up my sleeve because I was going to go to the airport on Saturday morning. We were going to have Operation Phoenix. It was an emergency training exercise where they simulate an emergency at the airport and then you've got Fire and Rescue New South Wales, New South Wales Ambulance, New South Wales Police, Rural Fire Service, SES, Rural Flying Doctor Service, basically wow, everyone involved, all VRA yeah, yeah. as well would be there, and they do a simulation of how to respond to an emergency. So, so they're actually all going to be out there... The whole kit and caboodle in there, ready to go. automobiles and lights and, are flashing and the whole thing. And someone has the fun job of coming up with the emergency and right, saying, right. right, pretend a plane crashes and we've got three people trapped or there's a fire or whatever oh, yeah, okay. interesting yes, scenarios yes. that like come up with. a real simulation. And the great thing about councillors is we had the opportunity to go out there and be an observer. We didn't get to go and yeah. be the patient or something like that. But that we, sounds like we could, fun, though, to be actually out to see you this. So, yeah, well, tell I, us about I, it. Yeah. I thought it would be interesting. But unfortunately, it was a bit rainy Saturday morning. Right. So they had to change it into a desktop exercise. So rather than wow, risk injury. Wow, that's a bit of a deflating moment. I wasn't expecting that. Right? No, okay. that's right. So, <laughs> so basically, I, I think what a desktop exercise means is they sit around a room together mm. and someone says, here's the scenario we had planned. Yeah. Okay, what does everyone do about it? And each service. Sounds far less exciting. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? So there was, there was no opportunity. Go and observe oh, that, bugger. It yeah, been, that would have been good fun. Yeah, it would have been. They, they might do it again. It's part of our CASA regulation or CASA requirements to be a registered airport that we've oh, actually got to go through and do this. Okay. But it's also good training for all those different emergency services. Yeah. And I've seen some of the emergency services in action in real life scenarios. When and it does rain as well? Or? Well, when it does rain, that's right. <laughs> and in those sort of scenarios, those simulated scenarios as well. Yep. And I, I've said it before, I do feel that if you're going to have a problem if you're going to have an accident, if you're going to have a tree falling in your house, whatever is going to happen to you, mm. have it happen here because, gee, we've got some good emergency service personnel yeah. and organisations out here. So, oh, mate, that's anyway, fantastic. I'm sure they'll do it again in some future. I'm not sure how often we've got to Let's do that. It doesn't one. rain next time, maybe. That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll organise that better. <laughs> uh, mate, so tell me, listen, during the week, of course, I had the pleasure of going down there, like a lot of people did, to the Anzac Day ceremonies. Um, now, the dawn service, magic as usual. It's always stunning, the dawn service, especially when the, the bagpipes are playing and the sun's rising. The thing that amazed me this year, and then I got the chance to walk as well on the Anzac March later on with the kids, And but the numbers this year are the people. Like, despite the warmth, because it was hot, like, it, by 11 o'clock, I'm telling you what, wearing the suit and the tie and this sort of stuff, I was sweating. I was very much the case, but it didn't seem to deter too many people. You were there, mate, so uh, tell me about it from your side of things. Did you enjoy the day? Oh, it is a very solemn day, isn't it? Mm. And you're right, the numbers are incredible. The Dawn service in particular, I was standing there at the Cenotaph and I had Bill Greenwood from the RSL Club, the Secretary of the RSL sub-branch, beside me. Mm. And I just whispered to him, Bill, what's your number estimation? Yeah, yeah. And he looked around and he said, easy 3,000. Wow, and and 3, I did a quick little thing where I just kind of count a group of people of about 100 and then see how many of those groups would fit into the crowd that's around mm. there. And I reckon mm. Bill was pretty right. I reckon definitely 3,000. And the temperature was quite nice in the morning. Yes, because yes. The morning I'd, was lovely. I'd normally wear gloves and I'd normally wear a, a T-shirt underneath my, my suit. Yeah. And 
I didn't need any of that. It was actually yeah. quite pleasant. The only thing that was interesting was just as the bugle was playing, a train went through the crossing at Darling Street, and of course <laughs> the bells went, and you could just hear them in the background. Yeah. But then but the hell, lights are flashing. Too. The bell chimes. There it was. Happening well, in the background. that's right. Was, but yeah. the, the lights flashing at the intersection there, when it was very, there was only a little bit of light around. There was just this flashing red in the background across the whole area there. But you can't help that sort of thing. No, that's right. But look, again, that was fantastic. And then the 11 a.m. service, you're right, it was Mm, hot. mm. But certainly, I would say 5,000 there at the 11 a.m. service. Yes, yes. So it was a a really good event from that perspective. Mm. What I really liked from a council perspective is that there were six different Anzac Day ceremonies across the entire LGA. Oh, wow. And we've only got oh, 10 yeah. councillors, but we managed to have councillors representing at all those oh, different that's good, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. Ceremonies. yeah it is yeah. good. So they basically went far and wide and went mm. out to different areas there. So I think almost all of our councillors were engaged somewhere mm. on one of those ceremonies. So that's good. You know, it's actually interesting. I was having a chat to um, one of my colleagues here the other day, and we are talking about Anzac Day. And thinking, of course, the fact that there's been a bit of talk about, you know, for the young kids today, and do they still get Anzac Day? You know, do they still actually understand what the real meaning of Anzac Day is all about. And, and so I always get very heartened when I see the crowds there still turning up in numbers and, if anything, gaining in numbers still. So despite the fact, that, which, which is a wonderful thing, we haven't actually been in a real war campaign for so many years. As a, you know, There have been obviously Afghanistan and Iraq and these type of stuff, but from a major worldwide level, it's so wonderful to see, though, the kids still understand the commitment and what these uh, guys and ladies did so many years ago. I think the really important thing is, of course, we say lest we forget Mm. and we hope that we never forget because while we remember, then hopefully it reduces the likelihood of having more wars because when people stand around and talk about this and they've got memories of people that they knew or grandfathers or great-grandfathers, when you've got these memories there, that's one level. But as we get going forward into the future, there will only ever be people who don't have any personal memories of it but again if we keep remembering what happened and how many people we lost how many people in the primes of their lives that we lost Mm. then hopefully people say well these world wars don't in fact forget world wars these wars don't seem to be a great thing really have it we don't do them anymore absolutely and i think that's really the point of continuing on having things like anzac day Mm. to commemorate the fallen but also to remember Mm. Now, Matt, today, of course, uh, I want to just get into last week's council meeting there because there was uh, quite a few um, discussions had and quite a few resolutions made. I'm going to start off here with uh, a very important one. Now, we've had a number of discussions with this in regards to the Macquarie Conservatorium of Music. Um, now, of course, there, I'll use the word displaced because in many ways that's probably what's happening. They're, they're going to have to move out of their current uh, premises and they're going to have to move into somewhere else. Now, they've come to council seeking assistance in regards to this, just to update people in regards to it. There's been some discussion in regards to uh, whether or not council is going to offer assistance to the Macquarie Conservatorium and in what type of way this assistance is going to be offered. So I notice here the fact that it was on the books there to be discussed last Thursday night. So what has council decided to do now with the Macquarie Conservatorium of Music? And so you're right, just for that brief bit of background, they've currently got a Department of Education building and they've got that at Peppercorn lease rate, so probably a dollar yep. a year or thereabouts. Okay. Peppercorn yep. doesn't necessarily say a dollar a year, but most people recognise it's about a dollar a year. Sure. It's a token amount. Yep. And so the lease there, I think, formally runs out at the end of June this year, but they've got a, a bit of an extension to the end of the year, maybe-ish. So they okay. need to find somewhere to go fairly quickly. Yep. And so they've been talking to council about some help with that. 
Now, Council recognises how important the CON is for Dubbo, for the overall education of people in Dubbo and Wellington and the region. And one of the things that I think is really important here is that when you've got people looking to come to Dubbo, for example, they might be looking at, I want to move my family there, so let's see what schools are like. Oh, gee, we've got some good schools in Dubbo. Mm. Great. We, we know we can get our kids educated. And we've got good shopping facilities and good sporting grounds and good cultural facilities. And they might want to get their kids educated with music as well. And, of course, the CON has a very good name, Macquarie Conservatory of Music. That sounds like a great place to mm. send my kids to mm. be educated. And I'm a little bit biased here because... My four kids all went through the Macquarie Conservatory sure. of Music yep. and they've learned piano and guitar and drums through that process. So yep. I, I've got a lot of time and respect for the work that they do. So that's a really important part of Dubbo. But also just looking at the cultural landscape and one of the things that I think that I certainly have seen from the time that I've been on council is that we've improved our outlook from a cultural perspective dramatically. In my time on council, we've built the Western Plains Cultural Centre. It's got the word cultural in it, mm. so it must be cultural. Mm, so that is a fantastic well, facility. I, I'll vouch for that. I've been in there a few times. It That's feels right. very cultural to me. We've got the Debo Regional Theatre and Convention Centre. Mm-hmm. We've had events like Artlands 2016, which was a major a national cultural event mm-hmm. here in Dubbo. Yeah. We've had the Archibald, the full Archibald exhibition, two times and another mm. third time coming up in June Dream this Festival year. Dream Festival now as well. Dream Festival. So there are so many things that I've seen that have changed in our community mm. just as a result of some small things happening, a slight attitude change, a few extra things being added. I think we've always looked after our sporting community quite well, Mm -hmm. but we're trying to round out that community. So I think it's very important. So when they talked to council, we talked about a whole range of different options, lots of debate around all of that. How can we do this? This is extra expense for council. All those things were discussed. And then the final resolution by council was that we've got a building. It's the old carpet court building. It's at 139 Darling Street. Okay, so this is the one sitting out the front there near the, um, well, the, the culture, not the culture centre, the... Um, Theatre. Theatre, thank you. That's Correct, it. yeah. Yes, so right absolutely. next door to there. Now, mm. we haven't done anything with that yet. We bought that as uh, an idea to keep expanding our footprint around that civic admin building footprint mm. there. We also own the flats that face onto Carrington Avenue. We didn't necessarily oh, okay. buy those because we wanted to ha- be a landlord and, and mm. rent out flats to people. But again, as that whole block, uh, we need more and more services, mm. then I think that idea of when some of those things come for sale, strategically it made sense. So we've owned the carpet court building. We've had some people go in there. The Electoral Commission, for example, went in there for a period of time, but we haven't had a long-term tenant. So that was identified by both council and the conservatorium as a place that might not have been ideal, but mm. certainly would fit the bill for what they needed for a conservatorium. So in terms of helping the conservatorium, the final resolution from council was that we would give them that at a peppercorn rate, so basically paying the same as they paid at the for the Department of Education, a dollar a year. Right. And that building then will be fitted out by the con for their needs. Now, that'll be at their expense. They've estimated maybe $700,000 they'll spend on a fit out there. So it'll be a pretty impressive fit out there. Mm. And that'll be for a five-year period. And then at the end of that five-year period, by mutual agreement, we may extend that for another five years. Now, the big picture plan is that hopefully around where the Greens are, the old diversity bowling club, that whole area there, we're also looking to master plan that area to expand our cultural facilities around the Western Plains Cultural Centre. Now, we hope, nothing definite yet, Mm. but we hope that as we expand that, we might have some plans in there for a state-of-the-art conservatorium built exactly to their needs and we'll obviously have to seek out some funding mm. from state and federal governments for that. Mm. But in the meantime, having a home at least for five years, maybe for 10 years, 
where there's enough space for them to do what they need to do in a great spot. Yeah. There on Darling Street, I think, is a fantastic spot. Beside the co- the theatre, makes sense as well. You've got that whole area there. And if it gets to the stage where they want to do some concerts that might involve a large audience, they've got the theatre next door. It seems to make sense for that whole area there. And again, at that peppercorn rent. So we are subsidising them, if you like, to uh, about $70,000 a year. If we rented that building out commercially on a long-term lease, we'd get about that. We've got a lot more than that on a pro rata basis when the Electoral Commission leased that, but that was only a short-term rental. On a, an annual basis, we'd probably get about $70,000 for that. So, so I suppose, yeah, like, sorry. you're right, mate. So look, the, um, certainly from where I'm sitting right now is, uh, I think it's great that the Conservatorium is going to be staying here. And that, that's wonderful to hear that there's been the opportunity here now that councils come to resolution on this. There's an agreement that's been made to accommodate the Conservatorium. I'm sure there's probably a few people out there that may be asking the question in regards to this is a very profitable organisation. They're, they're a group that, you know, are making, and we talked about this before, over $100,000 a year. They have a million dollars sitting in the bank. There's a lot of good organisation groups out there that um, will probably come, I'd suggest, cap in hand now, seeking um, $70,000 grants or to the equivalent of. So, you know, from the point of view of that situation like that, I know we've discussed it as well in regards to this. When the discussion came around from the council point of view, how did how was this discussed? How was this received by councillors, knowing full well this is a profitable organisation that you're now going to support in this sort of a way? The really important part here is that any application, any request needs to be assessed on its merits. Mm. And you may be right; there might be other organisations out there who say, "Well, if you've got seventy thousand dollars for the con." I'd like to put forward an idea for some money for my organisation, whatever it might be, a not-for-profit, a charity, a a rotary club, a a good organisation in our community, which there are many of. Mm. And if that happens, then council will have to look at that, assess that, decide whether we've got the budgetary capabilities to support those organisations and then make decisions on each one. Mm. It may bring lots out of the woodwork, it may not, but we can't make decisions based on what might happen. Mm. We need to make decisions on what's in front of us right now. Now, there is an argument that says that it's not really costing us anything because we weren't getting any income for the building as it was. And if there were any repairs that were needed, we might have needed to spend money on those repairs. Mm. At least with this lease, even though it's a peppercorn lease, any repairs or maintenance that are required will need to be done by the conservatorium. So you look at that from that angle and you say, well, there's no net cost. Now, the the counter to that argument, of course, is that you could lease it out and you could generate $70,000 a year. So Mm. there's a net uh, there's a cost of uh, opportunity or lost opportunity there, mm. but at the moment we're not receiving income for it on a regular basis. Mm. So the, there is that argument there, but again, there are other council buildings that we own. I just mentioned some flats there now. Someone yeah. might come along and say, well, I need somewhere to stay. Can I go and live in one of those flats there? Again, mm. Mm. people can come forward with any ideas. That you, there's not any methodology that we would stop people making a request of council, but the decision about what happens at the end of it all, that's obviously down to, in these examples, councillors and and the discussion that happens with those. And the debate about this was good. There was a lot of discussions back and forth at the committee meetings two weeks ago. There was a good, fruitful discussion. At the council meeting, I think just about every councillor had a say on it and certainly had an opinion on it and put forward that opinion. So I think it's been really good, robust discussion. And I've said it before that the idea of things going to committee meetings and then two weeks later going to council 
mean that the community's got a chance to have a, a discussion. And after our last podcast where we discussed it, certainly I had people contact me from the community, talk about it, phone calls, emails, etc. So there were people out there who were aware of it yep. and were discussing it. So that's all good. That's all healthy, I think. Just want to ask you a question in regards to because I know look, a lot of our discussion leading up to this was probably along the lines of the fact that you and I both talked about this. You've got Macquarie Conservatorium there, as we've already mentioned, of uh, that they're a very profitable group. So I was of the opinion of the fact that the council was probably not going to go this way and, and not go the way of, uh, you know, pushing them there to sort of allow the $1 uh, from the point of view of a yearly payment. So I really am interested in regards to how did this run in council from the point of view of voting? And in particular, which way did you go? Well, it's largely irrelevant, and I've talked about this a lot before with sure. people. A council resolution is a council resolution. How you vote is irrelevant. Now, it's public record, so I'm not trying to hide how I voted. The so vote, I can check this on council if I need to, so you, I can go you there can, and check it out. It's a public council meeting. We had people in the gallery. We had people watching online. So people put their hand up to vote. So the vote was 8 Two, and right. I voted against this resolution. Okay, so you voted against this. That's right, and Councillor Damien Mahon voted against it as well. But the umpire put their finger up. The decision's made. Mm. So from my perspective now, then I'm happy with the decision and we go forward. And if you get technical about it, mm. Section 226 of the Local Government Act, Part C, talks about, or Section 226 talks about the roles of the mayor. And Part C gets very specific and says that the mayor is a spokesperson of the governing body, including representing the views of the council. So now, and, and I say this to mm. all the councillors, before a resolution of council, talk to the media, talk to your friends, be yeah. out there in the public and not say... Out, debate it out. Exactly right. Have that debate, yep. have those discussions. It's not infighting, it's good, healthy democracy. You have those opinions. Mm. Once the council makes a decision, and if your points you put forward weren't good enough to sway a majority of your councillors, then... Democracy spoken. Mm. So as far as I'm concerned, yes, I debated it. I was going for a slightly different solution. I mm. was going for the interest-free solution yep. rather than the annual subsidy. I lost that debate. And that's fine. I'm a big enough boy that I can say, you win some, you lose some. Mm. I lost that one. And I'm fully in support of the Conservatorium. I think it's a great organisation for Dubbo. Yep. And I think the solution we've got here is absolutely workable. So I'm all in favour of it now because democracy spoken. Yeah. Council has made a resolution. And I've got to be a big enough person to say, I move on. And that's exactly what you've got to do in any of these situations. You accept the umpire's decision. Mm. No good sitting there throwing your bat on the ground, jumping up and down. The umpire's still got his finger in the air, ignored DRS. So. Well, the other thing is, of course, <laughs> buddy, is that you're the mayor. And, that's right. And, and you're, you know, as you say, you've expressed your opinion prior to this. The, the umpire's call has been made. You've expressed and put it clearly on record where you were. But as a group now, it's this is the decision our council's made. This is not your decision to make. Correct. This is what council's made. So therefore, from that point of view, as the spokesperson for council, that's what you now present with. That's you know? exactly right. And you've got to do that because it's all about the democracy of council. People come and ask me for certain things individually, and I say, well, I can't make a decision on that. I mm. don't have the authority to make a decision on that. It's got to go through council, and I can't tell you which way councils will vote. I can tell you my opinion before something, but I can't tell you which way councils will vote. So some yeah. people think that's kind of shirking the role a little bit, but it's the reality of it. Yes. Any mayor who goes out... democracy, isn't it, really? It is. And any mayor who goes out and says, I can make that decision, is probably lying, depending on the exact decision, but mm. it, they're probably lying about it because they can't make that decision. The mayor is the spokesperson for the governing body. Yeah. So my role. role is in council, I've got one vote. So there are 10 councillors there. So yeah. yes, I can put my hand up and vote for one vote. That's not six votes. I don't have six votes. So democracy wins the day and I've got to then go out there and talk about it, which is what I do. Mm. 
Okay. Well, look, I think I suppose that the, the final sort of point in regards to this is now in moving forward from here. So what's, what's the time frame now? How does this all work now for the Macquarie Conservatorium? So it really comes down to their time frame. The first thing they've got to do is find a builder, which is a bit hard to do at the moment, yes, but find a, a builder That's right. to do a fit out and obviously a design for a fit out in there. They've probably got some ideas of designs, but they'll have to go and finalise that. Now they know the exact shape of the building, so they'll have to go and do that, mm. work with a builder to go and get that done. And I suggest as soon as possible. Now yeah. I think they'll have a discussion with the Department of Education and they'll tell them that they've now got a building, they've got to get a fit out done. So that lease could be signed pretty much straight away. Okay. And from there, it'll just be hopefully working with the Department of Education, who I doubt would kick them out knowing they had somewhere to go mm. next month. If mm. the cons just said, well, we're going to cross our arms and dig our heels and we're never going to go, then they, they would be kicked out definitely by the Department yeah. of Ed. But if they can show they've got somewhere to go and we're just waiting for the builder to finish and that'll be ready to go by September or November or July, mm. whatever time that's finished, I suggest that the Department of Education would probably allow them to go forward and go into that at that appropriate time. Okay, very good. Mm. Very good. So interesting debate, interesting discussion, but yes. ultimately a good outcome. Now, speaking of uh, further discussions and that would be taking place on Thursday, I suggest the there's been some proposals put forward here in regards to the management of the uh, the regional pools. Um, now, currently, of course, council manages the pools. This is a decision that was made uh, by the previous council, and uh, so there's currently been run by council organisations here. But it appears as though the fact that, we talked about this recently in the podcast, about the fact this is going to now change back to a system which has probably been in place for nearly 30 years. And that is where uh, it goes out to private tender and we get uh, uh, private groups or organisations or individuals to actually run the pools here. So is this the way we're moving forward and has it a final decision now been made in regards to this? Absolutely right. The council has now resolved that. The last time we spoke about this, it was a recommendation from our standing committees, but it's now a resolution of council. We will go out and we'll invite people to put forward a proposal. It's not the same as a tender because a tender has very strict guidelines around it and we've got to decide exactly what we need in a tender. The idea of going out to the community and requesting a proposal we put forward is we then allow people to change what they put forward so they can suggest a variety of different methodologies. We might not have thought of that. And there are organisations out there across the nation that specialise in managing pools. They might have a specific way they manage it. We might love that idea or we might hate that idea, but again, it means people can put forward different ideas. Mm. And the, the important part about it is that people could put forward a management proposal to manage all three pools or they could have an individual pool. I just want to manage Geary or Wellington mm. or Dubbo or maybe they might want to manage Geary and Wellington together. So those options are available. Like all of those options. You, because you don't it is, have to just go all three, you can possibly just propose them for one. Because we're putting out a request for a proposal, mm. that's where it gives you that extra flexibility. If it was a tender, we'd have to tie that down and make it very strict in the way that went forward. Yeah. You mentioned the fact that Dubbo had been managed externally for a number of years. It's at least 30 that I know of, maybe mm. longer, but I mm. went back and traced some of the people that had managed that, and that was about a 30-year time frame. Mm. That was changed in 2019, where they went from external to internal. Probably the frustrating part about that was that I didn't understand the reason, the logic, I didn't really see any business case. If you're going to make a decision like that, mm. you think you'd put forward some sort of business case, throw some numbers in just to show how this was going to be better. At the time, I think they said it was silly that 
profits from the pool were going to an external provider rather than coming internal, but the pool doesn't make profits. Mm. There's a cost to run a pool. It'd be regarded as a service, wouldn't it? It's a service, that's right. And every council across the state that I talk to at various conferences, mm. one of the topics we often talk about is, mm. oh, how are you going with your pool? How do you minimise the loss? No one says, gee, we're making great money out of the pool. <laughs> it's always about minimising yeah. the loss of the pools. And so there was never any great profits going to any private organisation. It was really just about minimising the loss to the community mm. and also having it run really well. Wellington was a little bit different. Before the amalgamation, they had a partial management strategy. Many people just talked about the fact that it was internally run by a council, and that's partly true. The council used to employ the lifeguards, and they used to take care of the repairs and maintenance, mm. but they used to contract out the canteen, and as part of that, those contractors were the ones that typically collected money at the gate. Mm. So many people assumed that it was externally contracted to this particular couple or mm. as an yep. organisation was money a couple was running it, they assumed it was being contracted to them, but only parts of it were. So there were still parts, external parts, internal. But I think one of the things about having that external process is that there may be a bit more flexibility with those external mm. contractors. They're running it as a business, a bit different to council running it as a service. So they're trying to maximise income, which then we get to profit yep. share with. Yep. But I think the other thing is that the real problem for council, when council runs any business is that we've got to adhere to the local government award. Now, the local government award is not friendly to outside normal business hours, which a pool obviously has, not friendly to weekend trade. So you start to get to the point where you're paying lifeguards a much higher rate than mm. you would normally pay them if you were an external contractor. So it does make it dearer for the community. There's been some concern raised about the loss of jobs because we go from... Yes, I read something about that just recently about that. So is, is that a, a genuine concern for um, the people who are currently working there? Absolutely right. And for councils, it's a genuine concern as well yeah. that we don't want to go and cut out jobs and suddenly people are out on the street. Mm, mm. Uh, a couple of things from that. Most of the people that worked at the three pools under councils management were casuals. Okay. It runs for six months of the year. Yeah. So you're not going to employ a lot of full-time people because mm. six months of the year they're sitting around going, well, I'll just practice my backstroke sitting here. Yeah. You want someone that's a casual. And often they were university students, home for the holidays, mm. for example, that type of thing. So those casuals, well, they did some casual work last summer for council. Next summer, well, there's probably going to be personal, casual work, yeah, yeah. but it might be for a different company, for yeah, example. Absolutely. Or they might go and do some other casual work. Mm. There were some full-time staff members. One of them had resigned, said they weren't continuing on next year anyway, so that was easy. There'll be a couple of full-time staff members that essentially will either need to have another job found for them in council or have some redundancy payments. And again, it's tough from a council law perspective to make decisions like that, but hopefully, and I know this is the way I approach it, but hopefully councils are all the same, you're always approaching things in what is in the best interest of the public, the public good. Mm. And if you look at that and you're thinking, I've got a decision here that will financially benefit 55,000 people and that might mean that three people say get a redundancy payment, then I've really got to put the 55,000 ahead of the three, which sounds mm. harsh to those three, mm. but the reality is I can't keep running an internal business when I know it can be hundreds of thousands of dollars cheaper running external to save those three jobs. And the reality is, 
if they wanted another job in council, there's a lot of jobs going at council. So I well, reckon they'd be right. During the week, there I think there are nine or ten app, yeah, applications sort of looking for for different types of jobs across the board. So, so tell me in regards to it now. So we've got a situation uh, with, in regards to proposal. How much time do people have? Is there any sort of timeline set out now in regards to putting a proposal together uh, for this? Is there um, are there any guidelines for the proposal, or is this you know I suppose that's where a tender would probably be more specific, but. Um, can you maybe give a bit of advice to anyone who's out there maybe considering putting a proposal in as the type of things that, that council would be expecting from you? Probably I'd have a look at how the last management contract was. Mm. And the last management contract essentially had some parameters in place where that contractor in the Dubbo scenario was responsible for all the staff there, all the lifeguards, opening the pool, closing the pool, all the day-to-day running of the pool. Maintenance costs for mm. things that were typically under $2,000 and that's not necessarily set in stone because there are variables around that, but essentially small maintenance items mm. the contractor is responsible for, running the pool filters, all those type of things the contractor is responsible for. When it comes to larger capital costs or larger maintenance, so for example, the pool's got a leak and it's going to be $100,000 to repair that leak, the contractor's not responsible. Council okay. still owns the assets. Council still yep. is responsible for those major maintenance items. And if there are any major improvements, for example, we were going to put in a different pool or we're going to add a water slide, a different water slide to it or whatever, mm. then they would still be responsible, the responsibility of council and at the cost of council. So if I was a person looking at putting a proposal in, can I access any of the uh, the profit and loss sheets of, of parcel or get some information in regards to, uh, you know, because I'm going to put my money forward in regards to this, but I want to know how much I need to be sort of putting down as my proposal. So where could I get all that information? It's all public information. Okay. You can look at past budgets, you can look at exactly the profitability of the the pool when it was council run, you can go back into previous ones and look at how it was when it was externally run and how much that contract was. So all of that is public information. And depending on how experienced you are as a pool operator, you Mm. might have your numbers anyway and know exactly what you should charge a council to run a pool, or you might want to look at those in greater detail. It'll be the initial one, the parameters we're putting around it are that we would like an initial five-year contract. Mm -hmm. And that would start from 2023 summer, technically it would be the first year the contract would be 1st of July 2023 through to the 30th of June 2024 and each year after that. But you're not going to open the pool on the 1st of July 2023, obviously. Mm, So we're going to put that out, advertise that. There'll be a time frame to have those proposals in by. That'll then come back through to council where councillors will look at those proposals and make a decision based on what we think is the best for the community, for the public interest. Mm. And then there'll be someone in there. At the end of that five years, there'll be two one-year extensions available as well. But again, we've put those parameters in. Someone might come forward and might suggest different parameters to that, different ways of management. They might suggest that they take care of management up to $5,000. Or again, mm. this is the, the idea of the proposal. Mm. They can put in different ideas, different parameters. They might have a capital investment fund where they want to go and add some capital to it and build that into the pricing of it all. So all of these things okay. are on the table. It really comes down to be creative, do something that you think is going to be good for the community, mm. and then let councillors choose which is going to be the best one for the community. Yeah, sounds exciting. Now, speaking of uh, more work that sort of happened there on Thursday, it sounds you had a big meeting on Thursday, lots to get through there. Yeah. The uh, the draft budget, it sounds like it's uh, it's ready to hit the streets, so to speak, to uh, get people uh, in the community to have a look at it and uh, to see if there's any changes or options or, I suppose, is, it, is there opportunity still for people to put forward a proposal at this sort of point in time? Like, uh, where are we up to in regards to this? 
on public exhibition from Monday the 1st of May oh, through okay. to Monday the 29th of May. So you've got a month. You've got essentially a month, four mm. weeks technically, mm. and you've got till 5pm on Monday the 29th of May. So okay. you're right, we've now, councils have now approved the draft budget for the purpose of display. So that's not approved, that means we're not going to approve that now as it is. It goes through a process where it's on display, we get submissions in, they're then further considered, and mm. then finally at the meeting at the end of so June. So I can still put a submission in now. Like if I'm an organisation, say, uh, let's say a community-based organisation, and and I, I've got a project that uh, I'm pretty keen on, um, and it's uh, I potentially might need, I don't know, fifty thousand dollars to build something. Can I still put a proposal in to council at this point in time? That's exactly when the time is right. through that period from the first of May to the 29th of May. That's exactly when you'd put a proposal in. Now the mm. thing I would say to you is wearing your community organisation hat and the $50,000 you want, when people put submissions in, they can say whatever they want mm. in those submissions. That's fine. But what I encourage people to do is when they want extra money spent on something, then I encourage them to look through the budget and find where we should take the money from because we want to try, the ultimate aim always is to have a zero-sum budget. Mm. We're actually aiming over the next few years to get a budget that's in the black and surplus because we've talked about it before, there was mm. that $20.3 million loss that the last group of councillors left us with. So we need to kind of fill that hole a little bit. Mm. But mm. the first instance, you're aiming for a zero-sum budget. So if you add a $50,000 expense, mm. well, you want to take that from somewhere else because you're trying to balance it. And I say to people, think of it like their home. Mm. They've got a budget in their home and you go and buy a new TV this week when you've been saving some money or putting some money aside for a new washing machine, well, you buy the new TV, well, you can't buy the washing machine. It's the same thing. The numbers are bigger. There's more zeros in at the end of the numbers mm. that we're talking mm. about, mm. but the concept is the same. Just because they're big numbers doesn't mean you can spend like a drunken sailor. Yeah. No offence to any drunken sailors out there, <laughs> <laughs> but, but the idea is that you're not trying to mm. just say, what else do you want to spend money on? Yeah. It would love, be lovely to be in a situation where you, you didn't have enough things to spend money on. Yeah. Any time I've seen it, and it's, it's a constant joke in council that I've seen forever, any time we get to the stage where we've got a budget that is in the black a little bit, let's say it's $100,000 in the black, mm. if ever a CEO says, oh, we're actually going really well, we're $100,000 in the black, find something else to spend that $100,000 on, I guarantee with 10 councillors, you'll spend that $100,000 10 times over because yes, each councillor... Absolutely, they've got their own ideas. <laughs> they'll come up with their yeah, own yeah. thing to spend $100,000 on and yeah. then the, the CEO will say, hold on, I... I wanted a hundred thousand, not a million dollars spent. Right. Yeah, I yeah. should have told each of you got ten thousand. I shouldn't have told anybody anything about That's it. That's right. Yeah. Should have left it in the black. Exactly. So it is a big document. We're talking yes. about hundreds of pages in that document. Mm. One of the things that's hard about that is looking through the whole document is difficult. I always say to people, go and find something that you're interested in, mm. a niche group, a special interest group, something that's a focus for you, and look at it around that part. Now, sometimes people out in the community have got greater, much greater knowledge about certain areas that they know about than mm. councillors do because we've got to be a bit of a generalist. We've got to be yep. across everything, yep. know a little bit about a lot. But there are people out there who definitely know a lot about mm. one particular part of the budget. So they might point out something to us that is an anomaly or isn't done right or could improve things, a mm. whole range of things. So when you see that in there, then mm. definitely send that in. And I guarantee, well, I know I personally do, and I'm pretty certain every other councillor does, will read every one of those submissions yep. They may not act on everyone because you're still trying to prioritise yeah. and you're trying to prioritise for the best mm. of the overall community, not necessarily one small group. But 
you're reading that to see how those ideas can mix into the well, overall budget. Imagine someone sort of looking through the budget and going, look, I notice here that your uh, last financial year you spent X amount of dollars on this. Um, what I'm asking here is for $50,000 on this, I can see that if we take it from this area, because I've seen where that expense has been made and that project has now been finished and done or whatever, or this, you know what I mean? Like I suppose in regards to justification, you can't just simply just turn around and, and say to council, look, I need $50,000. Um, I'm in the cultural sector, um, sporting, take it from sporting. You have to have, I'd suggest, some sort of uh, strong rationale to be able to sort of to say, I want to take it from here to give it to here. And you don't have to have that. You can just put a submission and say, spend 50 grand extra on A, B and C. But it makes it better and easier and more likely for you to get what you want mm. when you can point out somewhere that you could take the money from. Yeah. And another example we saw in one of our workshops was the entrances to Dubbo. You've got some of those entrances where people have said, I'd like more mining to be done on those entrances. So mm. we've talked about that at a workshop, for example. Mm. And we said, well, what would the cost of that be? Or what else could you do? And so there was an analysis done. Mm. And if we mowed the entrances and tidy up the entrances more often, mm. then you could reduce some of the maintenance on something like Tracker Riley Cycleway yep. or some of our sporting fields or some other areas. So you have to make a decision about mm. those priorities. Or if you just want to fund that, in addition to, and so don't change your maintenance on Tracker Riley or anywhere else, and just have the entrances looking better, then you need to take money from some other area. So that might be mm. from the road budget. So we might have $300,000 less to spend on road maintenance, mm. for example. So mm. they're the sort of constant priority changes. When you're having those discussions that you're trying to find areas that are connected to it, like there's a classic example, you know, you've got your entrances, uh, the most classic uh, way that's connected to it would be the roads coming in on it. So is that how you sort of, you know, weigh that up? Sometimes it is because sometimes it is from that same budget. So mm. sometimes mm. you'll just look anywhere and say, where can we find some savings in the budget and where can we spend that money? And probably one of the examples that we have talked about a little bit is the aquatic leisure centres. We believe there are some savings to be found there. Now, we won't realise those necessarily immediately, mm. But certainly over that five-year time frame, we believe there'll be some savings to be found. So there might be several hundred thousand dollars we might save there. There are other facilities of council that can run better. The airport, for example, is being impacted in the past by COVID. And so that's reduced the income we've received. Normally the airport puts back money into council, but normally in the last couple of years it's been a drain on funds mm. from council so other things like that that one's a bit outside our control mm. Mm. but there are other areas that you might say how can we run this differently better whatever and so you don't really mind if you can find savings in one division and they can be put into a different division that's okay yeah the director and the staff in that division might prefer that it's kept in that division yeah. but from a council perspective we're trying to look at the big picture try and look at overall the whole council where yeah. can we adjust this to get the best outcome for the community and satisfy the priority direction of the community, which is really the important thing, mm. not just one person in the community, but mm. the overall community. At the end of the day, you've got one month from pretty much the 1st of May to finalise your submissions. Now, Matt, this next one's interesting. One, we've uh, talked about this uh, in the past, and it's all about the, the way that I suggest um, we try to remember... In a, in a community way, uh, those who have given a fair bit to our community. Now, some of the things that uh, we've talked about here, the whole idea of these memorial plaques that, that, uh, that sit on the chairs and, and how that sort of stuff goes. And, of course, we talk about how in Europe we see this all over the place. And we have a couple of examples of it. Um, I like this discussion because I think it is something here that uh, we as a community, I'd like to see us do more 
different sort of ways of trying to remember those who have contributed to our community in special ways. But, of course, there needs to be policies. Like everything in life, there seems to always be policies, but at least by having policies, we set things up under certain structures, and so everyone then is playing by the same rules. During the discussions there on Thursday, was this also raised as part of the discussion at the council meeting? It's trying to set up something formalising how we can actually um, remember our loved ones, remember those community members who have done something special in a community sense. Back in 2004, one of the, that was when I was first elected to council, one of the other people who was elected to council as a brand new council was Bob Thompson. Right. Unfortunately, in 2006, Bob died of cancer. Mm. And so, as councillors, we're obviously pretty upset because we were working alongside Bob and he was Mm. a lovely gentleman, only 53 years of age. So, that's a bit close to our age, isn't it? So, it makes you think a little bit. Stop that. (laughs) (laughs) So, at 53, it seemed very sad that Mm. one of our councillors had been lost. And what we did as councillors, we brought forward another motion to have a seat with a memorial to Bob in Victoria Park. Mm. And so we did that, and that went through council, and that was all fine. But it was an ad hoc process. Now, we didn't do anything about it then. It didn't seem that important at the time. We Mm. had the seat for Bob, and that was fine. And we have received ad hoc requests over the years, but it's gotten to the point now where it is better to have a policy for things. Mm. And we've had a couple of requests lately, and it's been a bit obvious that we don't really have set rules or guidelines or a policy. So one of the concepts from the meeting on Thursday night was that there is now a draft policy we've created. Once again, it'll go out on public exhibition for people to make comment on. And so it just puts some guidelines and some rules mm-hmm. around if you want to have a park bench, if you want to have some park furniture or some sort of memorial plaque, what sort of person would be applicable for mm-hmm. having that? Can mm-hmm. we go and have a, a Mark Barnes memorial Chair, well, probably well, we not. We don't want to our Bob at fifty odd, you know. Like that's right. We don't, we don't have so one from no, Mark. No, not too early, please, mate. But that's right. Think about down the track for me. That'd be lovely. That's right. We don't <laughs> have one yet because memorials are, are often when people are not any mm, longer with us. That's right. Yes, yes. So yes, we, 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 mob, yes. we. That's right. So the idea is that it's got the basic rules and the basic guidelines there. So once this is approved, now it's not yet because it's only on draft for public exhibition. Mm. But once it comes back to council and is approved in its final format, anyone that wants to do that then can go and read that and have a look at it. Now we've suggested things at the moment about what that person might have needed to have contributed to the community, for example. Mm. The cost of that is borne by the person making the application and the location can be in consultation with council. But mm. these are, at the moment, draft guidelines. Mm. Have a read of those and see what you think of them. And it may well be that it's not relevant for you today, but at some point in the future you might want to have mm. some sort of memorial plaque or chair or something. Mm. You might want to plant a tree for someone, for example. So all these different options there. But I think yeah. it's a nice thing just to remember people who have made a significant contribution in our community. Now, just in regards to that, uh, let's say take Victoria Park. Now, Victoria Park, obviously, uh, council run, and you've got the beautiful trees in there, and there's lots of um, beautiful trees that are dedicated to, uh, particularly in regards to war veterans and things like that, within, especially around where we've got the cenotaph there. Is there a, is there a policy set in place in regards to that already, um, at, as to where trees can be planted and who they can be named after, or has this still all been ad hoc over the years? It has been a bit ad hoc over the years, okay. and obviously around the cenotaph there, you've mm. got the Rawdon Middleton bust, for example. Yes. You've got the a centenary trail or the centenary path there. Yes. So you've got things that have been built around that that link to war, link to commemoration mm. of people that have been involved in war. So that makes sense. Mm. But there isn't a set policy on that. Maybe that's another one we need to come up with. <laughs> right, okay. But as an example, someone might say, oh, I'd love to plant a memorial tree for 
Billy Bloggs, yeah. and I want to do it right near the Cenotaph because he used to love looking at the Cenotaph. Mm. And in consultation with council, we'd probably say, well, he wasn't involved in any war. There's not a definitive link apart from the fact that he liked the look of the Cenotaph. Mm. So we'd probably suggest we find a better location for that. So mm. that would be that part of this policy mm. in terms of that consultation process. Okay. But maybe there needs to be another policy around the Cenotaph and the things that we have around there. So again, you can make ad hoc decisions that you think are in the best interest of the community long term. But having a policy in place means that everyone knows the rules before they come to make the application. Yeah. I think that's the important part. Absolutely. I just want to talk about um, the repatriation of the axe-grinding groove rock from Wiradjuri Park to Terramunga Mine Reserve. Now, you might like to explain a little bit about this, uh, Matt. So, first of all... Um, just in regards to this uh, this axe grinding groove rock, a uh, couple of little quick things. Uh, what is it? And number two, Wiradjuri Park, just for the listeners out there, whereabouts is Wiradjuri Park? And why was it moved from Terramunga Mine in the first place? You've got lots of questions, haven't you? I do. There's about three or four there. <laughs> you, right. You're going to do your best to remember the first one. Oh, yeah. Today. So let's go through them. Wiradjuri Park, for a start, yes. is the small park if you're going west across the Sarissia Bridge. Mm-hmm. And instead of following the highway, you turn right up Thompson Street and then turned a tight right in again, mm-hmm. that's Rotary Park sitting in there. Now, probably 25 years ago, I don't know the exact time frame, but there was an axe grinding groove rock, mm-hmm. which was moved from Terramunga Mine Reserve to Rotary Park. Now, an axe grinding groove rock is something where they've found a rock that Aboriginal people can demonstrate has been used to basically sharpen axes on. And there are certain grooves in them. When you see one, you'll see a number of grooves there where you can just imagine someone thousands, tens of thousands of years Mm. ago, sharpening up another rock or some type of Mm. axe there on these. And there's little grooves that have worked into the actual rock Mm. from that. So a great bit of history there. Mm. Now, I don't know that the Aboriginal community was overly impressed that this was moved from Terramunga Mine mm. Reserve in the first place to Rotary Park. I'd imagine Park. historically speaking, that's a bit of a faux pas, isn't it? Sort of really moving, you know, especially historic areas like that and uh, particularly pieces of things like this you're talking about, the Groove Rock here. I, I often hear people from our Aboriginal community talk about taking things home mm. and so keeping that at home at Terramunga Mine Reserve probably would have been the preferred outcome. Now, I don't mm. know what happened all those years ago when it was moved. Sure. I'm sure there was some sort of consultation or discussion. But anyway, it was moved to Rodri Park and it sat there all those years. With the new Dubbo Bridge construction, it's going to basically go through Rodri Park. So uh, okay. yep. Rodri Park will no longer exist or at least in its current format it won't yep. exist. Yep. And so on council on Thursday night, it was a resolution was passed to go back to Transport for New South Wales, who will be managing this project, to say, please move the rock. Don't get rid of it. Don't destroy it. Don't because it's their responsibility. It. Is that right? Or? Well, they're they're building the new bridge, so okay. we believe it's their responsibility. Yep. And please move it back to Terramunga Mine Reserve because that is the home. And Lewis Burns, one of our councillors, mm. did a survey of traditional owners, and he found about seventy five percent of the traditional owners said that Terramunga Mine Reserve was the correct place for the axe grinding groove okay. rock to return to. Yep. So that makes sense, and it's yep. just one of those things. As a councillor, we don't have direct control mm. over that because it's a state government project, but we can make requests and a notice of motion is one way we can make requests of something to happen. So we'll now send off a letter to Transport New South Wales, yep. make that request of them and hopefully they've got to move it anyway because yes, they've got to yes. build a bridge. So why not move it where the, the community... The ideal place is to take it back to where it came from. Yeah, and, yeah. Have, and I suppose listen to the community and move it where the community would like it to be mm. moved to. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> 
I want to talk about uh, community grants and uh, financial assistance programs and community services funds. You've got a couple of different uh, operations here running, different ways of giving away money to the community. Um, I suppose, again, a couple of questions here for you. We'll start with a simple one to start off with. Number one, tell me uh, what's the difference between the financial assistance program and the community services fund? It's an excellent question, like and that. I'd like that to be answered myself. It's oh, okay, yeah, all right, fair enough, yes. It's one of the, I can tell you technically the difference between yes. the two, but it's one of those things that I think sometimes an idea starts and a program starts out of that idea, and then it grows and grows, and then it gets to the stage where it's not absolutely recognisable for what it was designed for in the first place. Mm, okay. And if I go back to my time at Dover City Council, we used to have a process where community groups could apply for some funding, and we used to basically allocate some funding. There wasn't a large amount of money and we'd allocate some funds to small community groups to help them with printing of their newsletter or small Mm, bits and pieces. It's grown now to the stage where we now allocate in the budget $150,000 a year. Okay. And we allocate that in our financial assistance program Mm. and the intent of that is to support services, activities or contribute to resources that will help create, enhance or build community wellbeing and amenity in the Dubbo Regional Council local right. government area. We also allocate $120,000 to the Community Services Fund and its intent is to support projects or programs that deliver social, cultural or environmental benefits to the communities in the Dubbo Regional Council local government area. Is that just me or that sounds very similar? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that sounds very, very similar. There are a couple of words and phrasings there which I'm sure you know, those who are more the linguists amongst us will clarify for me, but they do sound very, very similar. They do, and I think it's confusing for community groups. Mm. It's confusing. Which one do I apply? Yeah, should I apply for this one or should I apply for that one? That's right. Or do I put in for both and see yeah, which one yeah, am I applicable for? That's right. It's also com- confusing, I think, for councillors and council in general that you've got a pretty big grey area between those, the intent of those two programs that I've just talked mm. about. So we've got them in place at the moment. We've still got that council policy in place. So we've given some money out, which I'll mention. Are they here both in a worth $75,000 each? Or? No, no, one's 30 and one's 120. Oh. Okay. So again, you think, well, what's the difference there? So we've actually asked our staff to go back and essentially redesign our program. Hmm. They have we have two rounds of these programs at the moment. The so obviously you have half the money. So it's one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the year. So seventy five thousand dollars across the two programs. That's right. And so round one, fifteen thousand dollars for the financial assistance program, and sixty thousand for the community services fund. Round two, the same amounts each time. Right. Okay. And so that all gets a bit confusing. And Mm. it's also relying on community groups to plan a long way in advance. Mm. Many community groups run by volunteers often will be planning an event, a function, whatever it might be. And they might start the planning three or four months in advance. Mm. And then they say, oh, gee, it'd be good if we had some extra money from council to help out with this part of it. Mm. Oh, six months, every six months, gee, we just missed the one Mm. last month. Mm. And now the next one's not for another five and a half months. Oh, the event will be over by then. Mm. So we've said to the staff, Please go back and look at this differently. Have one program, one program that can cover both. I like that idea. One program that will do four times a year. Okay. So, yeah, give people those, I suppose, from the ad hoc point of view, of they're, as you say, planning an idea or a program that can benefit the community. Correct. Yeah, okay, I'll get that. Yeah, yeah good. So just make it simpler. And, yes, it creates a little bit more work for our staff and that they've got to basically advertise and Mm. assess these four times a year rather than twice a year. But we think by breaking it down into one program only and then determining what the budget is for that program as well, but Mm. we'll work on that part of it. But just having that ability to say, well, here's the program 
if it generally meets these guidelines, which might be a bit broader, then it'll be okay. So let me talk about this one, mm. and then the next time we talk about it, hopefully it'll be a different program. So yeah, we'll, we'll keep working on that. Financial assistance program, we had three groups that applied for money out of that. So essentially we gave RSPCA some money, we gave the Girls Brigade some money, and another group, I won't mention their name, mm. we didn't give money to. And the Why's reason that? we didn't give the money is because one of the rules associated with this is that if you've received money previously, you have to have a quid of that money. You have to show us yeah, how so you spent that money. money on. Okay. That's right. Yeah. And this particular group applied for some money, and we haven't received your acquittal from the last time we gave oh, us money. Okay. So right, we okay. said, sorry, you're not eligible. Mm. You haven't done your previous acquittal, which sounds a bit harsh. No, I think it's fair enough. But this is community money. Absolutely. This is your money You've I'm spending. You've got to justify your spending. Yeah, that's right. So that was the total amount from Financial Assistance Program. Mm. From the Community Services Fund, we had the Debone District Family History Society, Debone District Pipe Band, Emanuel Care Centre, Arana Heights Public School PNC Association, Arana Toy Library, and Red Cross Wellington Branch. They all received some money out of this one. Mm. But we said no to three organisations on the same basis. They hadn't given us previous acquittals. Right. Okay. So that yeah. didn't make sense, and we'd like them to put those acquittals in, then we can give them the money. They yeah, were yeah. eligible in every other respect. Yeah, right. They just hadn't done that previous acquittal. One group we said no to because they were ineligible. And this is one of those technicalities of the type Would of Would they have been more were. eligible for the other community grant group? Oh, or? Maybe. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. And so this, know. Is, this is where I think we just need to make it yeah. a little bit easier, a bit broader. I was going to say, is, is that the plan to try to maybe, is it to broaden the criteria or to make the criteria less onerous or what's, what's the... We'll make it probably simpler for a start because yeah. this group has filled in the documentation to apply for money mm. and you wouldn't do that and waste your time, again, of a volunteer to go through and do that mm. if it was pretty obvious in the guidelines that you weren't eligible for mm. the money. Mm. They obviously filled it in in good faith saying, oh, we'd like some money, please. Yeah. But it just wasn't applicable. Probably means they were too complicated, the rules and guidelines maybe. So let's simplify all of that. Mm. There was one other group we didn't give money to based on the process, where they're up to in their process. So essentially mm. we need them to advance their project a bit further and then come back and ask for money yeah. again and it will probably be approved. So is there a max capacity that you can actually ask for? Like if, if it's an organisation, is, is there an amount of money I can ask for or is it just sort of open-ended? Yeah, it is open-ended at the moment. That's something okay. we probably should tidy up as well. Obviously overall we've got a limit. But mm. on an individual basis, no, you could apply. And, and again, there are differences there. People applied for $500. One of the groups mm. we gave to you was $500. We gave away several thousand dollars to different groups, $9,000 to one group. One of the ones we said no to was $21,000. Yeah, so right, okay. people are applying for different amounts there. Yeah. So again, I just think we need to make it a bit simpler and just maybe put a cap on it there mm. and just make it a bit obvious there. And I think we get more applications, which is fine, we just have to make decisions yeah, on those, yeah, yeah. but just let those community groups that are out there that need some of the ad hoc money to help them run an event. One of the things that I really enjoy is when we give the money away, obviously mm. it's always good fun giving money yeah, away, absolutely. but one of the things I enjoy about it is I actually ask those groups to sing for their supper. We do a, a small ceremony. Metaphorically speaking, I'm sure. Metaphorically. <laughs> we do a small ceremony where we hand out the checks and have photos and all those things, but yeah. what I do do is I say to each group, great, I'm about to hand over a check to you for X dollars. Mm. We've got a small group assembled here of other community organisations. Can you tell us what you're going to do with that money? Mm. And I do that for two reasons. One, they're normally very proud of it, so they get to talk mm. about their organisation. But the reason I really like them doing it is I love 
how much they do with the smaller money amount of money we give mm, them. Mm. We might give them five hundred dollars, and they talk about all these things that we're going to do with that mm, money. And mm. I think, well, there's ten thousand dollars of value just yeah, added to the community, yeah. and they mostly do that through volunteering, and they also do it sometimes through some contacts. So they'll take that money and they say, oh, we've got a contact in our group that will give us this at cost price, so it won't cost us that much for that, and we'll mm. use those raw materials, add it to some volunteers, and you say, wow, what you just did for the community was worth a lot more than the money we gave you. So it is quite uplifting from that perspective, mm. but also demonstrates just how important these various charities and not-for-profits and mm. community organisations are to our community Absolutely. overall. Well, I look forward to uh, hearing the fact if we get these two uh, programs combined together. I had a notice during the week there, and I was driving into town. There's um, going along, heading in on Cobra Street on the left hand side. You've got the Keswick estate there on the left, and you've got all those acoustic panels all up on the left there. And there were some guys out there madly digging away and uh, setting up what's obviously going to be a new form of irrigation system set into place. I know we talked about this again a while ago now, but all of that area is about to be beautified. But as part of that beautification, it also sounds like they're going to have to remove a few of the trees. Um, I'm suggesting that's probably the original part that they put the trees in. A couple of things here again. Uh, number one, uh, what, what's the plan for that area? Is, is it just going to be trees planted in there or is it actually going to be properly beautified through it? And number two, well, why do they need to remove some of the trees? Some of those trees, and this is at the western end, so you write the mm. earlier section of there, some of those trees have actually started to damage the fence a little bit and okay. potentially... Were they planted too close or...? Probably planted a little bit too close, but okay. potentially they could be a little bit hazardous for the houses on the other side of the fence, mm. some of their mm. underground pipes, for example, or okay. their fence... Some of those type of things. Just so, wrong choice of trees, maybe, or yeah. Look, I'm not sure. I wouldn't like to comment on okay. what people have done there in the past. But the bottom line is, we've identified an issue. Mm. Let's remove those, and we're going to put some new trees along there. Mm. The general plan is just to have trees along there, so that eventually, when you drive into Dubbo, you look across there and you say, "Don't those trees look wonderful?" Mm. Now, the acoustic fencing is obviously to protect those houses in there in Keswick from the noise of the highway. But the acoustic fencing, even though they're a bunch of different colours, which mm. is trying to make it look a little bit different rather than a boring mm. straight fence of yeah. one colour there, yeah. it doesn't look as nice as a bit of nature. So having some trees along there makes sense. There'll be 14 trees that we planted along the eastern section there. But you're right too, there's some irrigation line work being done. Uh, there's some uh, basically current irrigation being adjusted as well. There's some stormwater channel area there that needs to be fixed up as well. So basically a lot of work you'll see there over the next few weeks. And ultimately, you'll see those trees there. They'll start to grow. And you'll probably struggle to see the acoustic fence in a few years' time because you'll just see the trees as you mm. come in. seems like only a small thing, but as you drive into Dubbo, having it look nice there I think is really important. And again, this is the sort of thing we'd prefer developers do, put trees up to protect mm. those areas. And so, again, So this is council doing this, is not the developer? Because of course it's we, a development, it's council. council that's right, anyway. that is our development. But that's yeah. the sort of thing that we'd recommend for developers anyway. Mm. We might do it in conjunction with them. It depends on the individual development. But mm. again, it gives protection for those residents in there from noise immediately with the acoustic yep. fence, but long-term, ultimately long-term, you'd like trees to protect from noise, but it takes too long for them mm. to get to that right size. So you do a combination of those two. Mm. That area will look better, and long-term, I think that entrance will look much nicer mm. in the Dubbo. Yeah, I agree. That's another little one here. I, uh, I came across there during the week uh, an email that was sent to me, uh, actually, uh, from in-house within my workplace, uh, Applications invited for the Minicomo. Minicamo? Minicomo. Minicamo, I Minicamo, we'll go with that. Minicamo Sister City Exchange Program. Um, this has been running for many years, hasn't it? 
Is, it, is this the one whereby, because our, our sister city is Minakamo, and these are the guys, of course, who contributed to the wonderful Japanese gardens, and we've always got a long, strong history here with, with this city over there in Japan. The sister city relationship was established way back on the 2nd of June, 1989, and on 23rd of November, 2002, the Shoyu and Japanese gardens was officially opened. So it's been on the back burner for a while. I'm assuming COVID must have sort of uh, put a halt on that sister city relationship of going across or then coming over here. But it looks like it's back on the agenda again. So I suppose in regards to this, what are we looking for here? We're looking for people to apply to go over as students or going over as teachers or going over as members of the public. Like who can apply for this uh, exchange? If you're in high school, aged from 15 to 18, and a resident of Dubbo Regional Council, yeah. then you can apply. Okay. And we've got 10 students that will go across in this program. Right. And you're spot on. This exchange program, the city relationship has mm-hmm. remained, but the exchange program has been on hold since 2020 because obviously it was very difficult to travel from mm. 2020 on for mm. a few years. Yeah. So there'll be 10 students who will go and two chaperones. Okay. And so Do you have to be a teacher to, to no, be, you can not be a, just a member of the public? Member yeah. of the public. Just a member, yeah, member of the public. Yeah, that's right. So the idea is that having those exchange programs is a really important part, I think, of that sister city relationship. Okay. And it is quite fulfilling to be part of those. Mm. Normally you go for, from memory, 10 days, maybe two weeks. Okay. So we've had an exchange student here in our house. So oh, lovely. That's, that's been nice. There was a, a Japanese student we had over here and spoke very little English, but we communicate mm-hmm. on things and learn a whole yeah. range of things. So that's so, how it works. You go across there and stay with the family over there? Correct. And that's the really, I think, interesting part of it because yeah. you get to be absorbed in day-to-day life. And Same family, two weeks? Typically, yes. Not always. There might be reasons you might change, but typically the same family. And then Mm -hmm. it doesn't always happen like this, but sometimes you'll have, say, for example, two of my kids have been over to Japan, Mm. two Minakamo as part of the exchange program. Mm. One of those, uh, one of my children went over and stayed with the family, and then that same student came over and stayed with us. So sometimes it works like that. It doesn't Mm. always have to work like that. But typically, yes, you would stay with the one family for the the 10 days, two weeks, whatever the exact Mm. time frame is, and the same in reverse. So Mm. it's a good way to learn about another culture the Japanese students that come here I normally do something with them welcome them at the airport or have some sort of function with them during the time and they're so excited to be mm, here mm. and the same in reverse when you see the students that are over there and I normally say goodbye to those students before they go and, and talk to them about the importance of right. representing Dubbo and, yeah. and they, I'm sure they listen to me for five minutes and then forget about that and just yeah. go and have a good time Excellent. but again now that it's starting up again, because normally it rolls through and there are people that talk about what they did last year and it's very easy to get applications mm. in. We've only so just opened up applications well, again now. I was going to say now. to you, like, so, so how do you get an application? Do you go online to the website? You go online to our website. They close on the 19th of May. Okay, so, so it's not too far away. That's right. You've got a, a little bit of time to go there. But if you just go to the council website, you'll find on the front page there some information mm. about it. Put the application in. It's not too onerous an application. Put some basic details in. Then normally there's an interview process. So okay. the sister city committee which is a committee, one of the community committees in council, mm. will typically have some members of that committee do an interview with the various exchange students or potential exchange mm. students and then pick the ones that go. And you do get a subsidy. I was going to say, does council cover the costs of this? or They don't cover the costs, right. but you get a $1,000 subsidy. So okay. you work out, there's a process basically where we get tickets across there mm-hmm. in terms of flights. The accommodation is pretty good because you're staying with a host family. Yeah, so yeah. you're not really paying money when you get there. Yes. It's really the flights from here to Japan and obviously and spending money again, over there I suppose and any money you might want to spend while you're there but yeah. we do give you a thousand dollars so that okay. doesn't cover the cost of the flights completely but at least it offsets that and that's for the 10 students 
and for the two chaperones. Okay. So if you do want to be a chaperone, you do know that at least you do get some subsidy mm. from that. One of the things that I find really interesting is that sometimes you'll have exchanges where we might have myself or counsellors go across and the same in reverse where some of those people come across mm. from there. Now, we do that with no subsidy whatsoever. And I sometimes re- read articles about, mm. oh, look at these counsellors going off to Japan on a gravy train. What they don't realise is that it's at their own personal expense. You mm. can't claim that on any sort mm. of tax deduction. It's your own personal expense to go and fly over there. And I've done it twice. I've flown to Japan twice to Minakamo for two separate events that we've had oh, there. Yep. And again, that's at my expense. I don't have a problem mm. with that. Mm. The only time I get a little bit disappointed is when I read an article in the paper where it basically talks about this gravy train and councils on this gravy there he train. There it up again. There he is. Eh? That's exactly yeah. right. And and when we have people from Japan, we've had the mayor, we've mm. had different representatives from Japan come across to Dubbo, again, that's at their expense. We don't know how they pay for it, but it mm. certainly doesn't cost our ratepayers money. The only cost to ratepayers is when we do the exchange program for students, $1,000 per student right. and $1,000 per chaperone. So, so suppose, just in regards to the chaperone, do you know anything about the responsibility of the chaperone? So if anyone's out there listening, uh, thinking, well, actually, that sounds like a great idea. I wouldn't mind being a chaperone of this. What sort of responsibilities would they have? It really is being the one in charge, or the two in this case, the two in charge of the students while they're there. So a huge mm. amount of responsibility. Mm. You're being entrusted by parents and mm-hmm. by the community to take 10 students over make sure they're well behaved, yep. make sure they're safe, and to bring them back again in one piece. Mm-hmm. So it is a fair bit of responsibility. Mm-hmm. So don't take it lightly, basically. That's a, it's a fair bit of responsibility That's there. right. There's no set credentials or criteria, yeah. but you need to be a responsible person and can demonstrate that. You don't need to talk Japanese or any specific criteria like that, mm-hmm. but it just needs to be responsible adult who believe that they can look after these kids and keep mm. them in one piece and bring them back again. So and transport's all provided over them. We get across there too, a shuttle to places and all those sort of things. You're very well looked after. When you land, as I said, that's all at your own expense. When you land and you arrive in Minakamo, mm. typically they'll have a minibus turn up and you'll be looked after for the next 10 days. So yeah, wow. you'll have accommodation, you'll have food. You could literally spend not another cent if you wanted to mm. from the time you arrived there because you do get very well looked after. And I find Japanese people are very hospitable mm. and they really want to make sure that you enjoy your time in Japan. They're very proud of Japan. Wonderful. They want to make sure you have a great time. So they are very accommodating and mm. very much focused on your needs and making sure you enjoy your time mm. there. So, yes, it is a very good time, but you do learn about another culture yeah. as well. And you, I, I know, for example, the student that my daughter stayed with, she still communicates with her via social oh, media. Yeah, so yeah. that was many years ago. Now I'm just trying to remember, it would have been at least four years, maybe five years ago yep. that that exchange occurred. So it is something that you do end up with lifelong friends and certainly experiences that you'll talk about for the rest of your life. Oh, sounds so like a wonderful Put thing your applications in, definitely. Absolutely. And that looks like the uh, Dubbo Regional Airport, the the numbers are rising again. Is this correct? Are we back to pre-COVID numbers? Is this how this is looking right now? It's finally getting back there. We used to always rely on our airport to generate income for the community, Mm. give money back to the community for it to be used on other things throughout the community. We got to the stage towards the end of my last term as mayor. I remember we hit the magic 200,000 number per year. Well, that's so 200,000 passengers. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so that's fantastic. And the way it works is that each passenger, the airlines charge a plane ticket price, and then an amount of that goes to the airport in terms of the providing the facility. So mm. the more passengers we get going through, the better it is for council. So that's mm. fantastic. 
Obviously, COVID hit transport around mm. the world yep. and numbers dropped fairly dramatically. But March this year, the numbers were back to the same as November 2019. So that basically back to wow. pre-COVID. Yeah. Do we have the same amount of flights still coming in and out like that now? Or the well, we're actually increasing capacity. Okay. So that's not up to us to decide. That's up yeah, to the yeah. airlines to, to decide. But, but it appears to be the case. Yeah, it's getting back there. We're certainly seeing an increase in capacity from the airlines, mm. putting on additional flights or sometimes flying in larger aircraft. So that's all good as well. And I think next year we'll be back over the 200,000 next mm. financial year we'll be back over the 200,000 mark again. Right. This year, we we won't hit that because we certainly had part of this financial year, June last year through, there were still some times when we weren't getting full numbers through, but it's certainly looking much better. And again, that's good because that means that rather than the airport being a drain on our resources, it starts being a positive. Yes. That means we can use that money in other for other things in our community. Yeah. So that's all a very positive thing. Oh, loving that. That's a wonderful situation thing for all of us indeed. Well, my friend, it's uh, that time of the week again. It's uh, heading towards the end of our show today, and it is time for the Limerick of the Week. So what do you have for us today, mate? What's uh, The brain's been obviously mulling over a few thoughts uh, this week. What have you come up with? I can't go past the budget. The budget's... The budget. Well, it's always a very exciting thing, the budget. I'm sure those people are going groan, but no, it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it sets the tone for what we're doing for the well, it does. next it's, it's year. It's money. You spend it and it's, you know, people benefit from it. It's, and it's significant sums. And it's yeah. one of those things where... I'm taking your money and spending it in a range of different ways. Now, we do get more money than just rates money, mm. but that's certainly a significant part of it. So mm. people should be aware of it. So well, well, fire away. Show my limerick this got. week is all about the budget. Councillors now have a budget in hand, and we invite all our residents to disband. Review it, we plead. Together, we'll succeed in making our community grand. <laughs> ah, well done. Well done. You always never cease to amaze me, that intellect of yours, when it comes down to the Limerick as well. Well, folks, it's going to be a bit cool this week, I think. I think the uh, it's time to bring out those winter woolies. So uh, my advice is get out there, enjoy the restaurants and all that fine dining around our town, and have a wonderful week. Until next week, take care. Meryl Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.